0: Hi, this is Patrick Lindsey for episode four of the Calizunas podcast. Keith Burke can't be with us today because he is uh, celebrating the birth of his second daughter. So I'm here with uh, Matt Wensing, who's the founder and CEO of StormPulse.
1: Hey, how are you doing, Patrick?
0: I'm uh, doing great, Matt. Thanks so much for taking the time to have a podcast with us today. So uh, I was just looking back at Hacker News uh, today, and I'm a note for lunch, but I'm a little on now, and realized that I have known you for exactly... Uh, 1,300 days because <laughs> uh, you had your first post of um, Storm Pulse about three years ago or so during take, and it was a, like, rate my brief uh, elevator pitch, and I gave you some advice on that Then we started our correspondence after that, but... Um, I've been following you obsessively for the last 1,300
1: days. What is (laughs) StormPulse? Yeah, uh, first of all, thanks. The HN connection is uh, definitely fun. StormPulse is, uh, it it started out really just as a project and an idea that uh, I couldn't get out of my head uh, because a bunch of hurricanes had hit South Florida, which is where I was born and raised, and it ended up growing up from just being a project that I worked on on nights and weekends uh, into a fully-fledged organic startup idea, as Paul Graham would say. And uh, what it is today is for businesses, uh, particularly those that have a lot of assets all over the United States, uh, we do real-time weather monitoring for them. Um, And you kind of think of it for this crowd maybe as uh, server monitoring, uh, where obviously you want to watch and see how your servers are doing. Well, obviously big companies, especially those in logistics and supply chain spaces, uh, want to watch over their infrastructure and physical goods. So we created a tool. Uh, which is what Storm policy evolved into that lets them add all their assets to a, you know, homegrown, we built it from scratch, uh, weather map and monitor how the weather is going to potentially impact those locations over the next uh, three to five days in particular. So that could be anything from hurricanes to tornadoes to flash floods um, or even just a lot of rainfall in some afternoon that delays the shipment.
0: So... Um, the first time I heard this idea, I was really, really taken with it because I lived in Japan from my adult life, and we have a very um, particular understanding of the dangers of severe weather here, but uh, I know some folks in the U.S. did not connect it as strongly as I continued... Um, just briefly give the description of why would somebody who has billions of dollars of capital standing in a hurricane care? <laughs> what are the decisions they're going to make based on the information Thornton Pulse gives them?
1: Yeah, so um, the way we understand it, and, and so obviously the knee-jerk reaction is, well, of course they care. Um, but to get into a little bit more depth, um, there's really kind of three phases to it you can think. is really the uh, before, during, and after phases. And so before an event like that, Um, you want to take every precaution you can, uh, to not only put things into safety and out of harm's way, um, but also optimally position things, um, that you're going to need, uh, during the event or after the event. And then of course, during the event, you need information so you can make decisions about, um, who is doing what right now, how bad really is it, um, what are the effects and, uh, should I really be worried about what's going on under that red or purple, uh, cyclone over there. And then after the fact, um, You know, there's businesses who entire business is only after one of these events goes through. um, You have everything from rebuilding to restoration to optimally moving in uh, disaster relief efforts. um, And frankly, even just plain old capitalism, you have people like Walmart who come in after a disaster and say, if we come in there with a boatload of chainsaws and a stockpile of cash, we can do business with a bunch of people who need chainsaws and don't have electricity. So there's just a lot of uh, economic implications uh, for these kinds of events, and uh, we, we just love digging into all of them. So,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, and that totally um, tracks with my experience. I um, looked forward uh, uh Japanese disasters in brief detail on my blog before, but I worked in um, back-end systems for Japanese universities, and we have a... Uh, we're largely concerned about you know getting the information to people before um, the tsunami makes landfall is pretty much like priority number one. But, um, you know, it's uh, software that obviously makes a huge difference both for, you know, the way I always describe it is how to protect people's lives and property. Sure. So, um, because we have lots of tech, tech folks who listen to this podcast, I need to talk briefly about the technology behind it. I remember um, the first time I loved the idea when I heard about it and the moment that this really, like dropped my jaw about the technological aspect of it was when you said you wrote your own JavaScript mapping engine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, <laughs> we approached this as a labor of love, um, which meant that we wanted to do everything uh, the quote unquote right way. And we took a mm-hmm. look um, when we started out at Google maps and, Google Maps really did not um, cut it for us because we wanted to create a weather map. And while Google Maps is a fantastic map for everything from you know bike tours to self-driving cars and all that stuff, it really isn't the best cartography for displaying the weather. Um, so that left us with two choices, either compromise on the initial vision, which we were just starting out, so why would you ever do that, uh, or create our own mapping. So that's what we did. And I spent a... A fair amount of time just getting my head around, um, and I wasn't a—I'm not one of those uh, math, comp sci, uh majors, so I'm not uh, super fluent in um, a lot of mathematics, geometry, trigonometry. But I got up to speed really quick. Spent a lot of time on Wolfram Alpha <laughs> and uh, learned how to get my head around map projections and got the imagery from NASA and compiled it with some clouds that I found from a guy at Caltech. And yeah, we we actually built an entire mapping stack um, from nothing. So. Uh, I still remember. Mm-hmm. I still remember sitting there, staring at my uh, editor, which was basically blank. Going, <laughs> this is the start of a very large application, um, and it's totally blank. And uh, I just, you know, but but you know, I was fueled by passion and got up really early, and mm-hmm. the rest is rest is relatively recent history. So, yeah I'm
0: doing this for what is it now, like. Uh, it's almost as old as being a cargator,
1: so seven or eight years-ish. <laughs> yeah, so I had the idea, and those storms were going through Florida in October of 2004, um, and that meant that I was, yeah, I, I I had the idea in October 2004. I still have the blog posts, actually, on Blogspot, uh, where I was mulling this over and just had this idea of, yeah, I'm going to work on this thing, and uh so now we're October two thousand and four, coming up to in a few months October two thousand and thirteen, which will be nine years
0: since I had the idea. So, wow! Well, uh, so actually, even older than my business. And <laughs> it's funny that I'm comparing our two businesses in the same because yours saved people's lives and mine makes bingo cards and make your school teachers. <laughs> <laughs> the internet is a funny, funny thing. It is. <laughs> um, I gotta admit, like every time I hear about your business, I have the I wish I was working on a bigger problem. Uh, pangs of envy (laughs) something i've heard from other people then of course there's the other pangs of envy inducing story um so you have a very famous customer of storm pulse right yeah every time i tell this story to people they don't even believe it so let's (laughs) get it on the record so i can refer people to it in the future yeah Um, so you got a the way i remember the story and I'm like my father, I often embellish on stories I've heard, <laughs> so feel free to tell me if I'm lying about this, but you were sitting at the kitchen table with your son one day doing the uh, doing the bootstrapper dream of like sales call in one year and a uh, bowl of cereal in the other, and uh, you got a phone call from somebody and called him back, and got Dan, and where did Dan look at?
1: Yeah, I got a voicemail, um, I read the voicemail and I could hardly believe it, so I called the uh, I told my I told my child that I got this phone call and they, they said they never heard that before. That sounded pretty outrageous, even them. And I think they were probably six or seven at the time. Um, and then before I could even call them back, they called me back. Um, and so I ran upstairs to my home office so that I could have some peace and quiet and sound professional. And uh, sure enough, it was the uh, White House Situation Room, which meant that it was, you know, literally the basement of the White House.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Um, for folks who are not American, uh, the American audience, the White House Situation Room is kind of the nerve center of the White House when they're doing uh, something that is breaking in real time related generally to national security. That's where President Obama and the team were when they caught Osama bin Laden. Um, it's where they command disaster relief efforts and whatnot. So it is a big deal. Um, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so and, and, and the amazing yeah. yeah the amazing part, Patrick, was that you know, they they left me their phone number as if it was like my neighbor next door. You know, um, I guess with all the confidence in the world that if I abuse that phone number, that there would be uh, easy tracing and repercussions. But I called them back, and because uh, because actually, when they called me back, I didn't get I didn't get to ask them if I could somehow capture an image or something that proved that they really used it. So mm-hmm. then I'm spending all afternoon here. I remember sitting at the lunch table now with my wife and telling her this story and of course her thought was well you should have figured out some way to get their name you know or or, or get proof Mm -hmm. that they used it and so I I built up the gumption to call them back and uh, sure enough it rang and I was expecting it to say you know thank you for calling the White House for gift shop press 1 you know for tours press 2 but but sure enough it just rang and rang Uh, and I think maybe it was one and a half rings in somebody picks up the phone and just says situation room (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, so yeah. at that point, I kind of felt like I called maybe the red phone. Um, and so the very first, mm-hmm. very first thought I had was black helicopters. The second thought I had was, um, this is not urgent. So please don't, you know, I, I wanted to somehow explain that I'm not really trying to prank you by calling you for my bootstrap SaaS business. Um, but I just, mm-hmm. have a, I just have a genuine question. And uh, the, the person I was calling wasn't there, but but he said she could call me back. And sure enough, she did. But between the time that I hung up with him and she called me back, I found out on the White House blog um, at whitehouse.gov, uh, there is indeed a tour of the Situation Room that they have recorded in public domain MPEG. <laughs> and I was able to uh, capture a screenshot of that tour um, and put it on our website. And since it's public domain, I think I can have uh, free conscience and liberties to use it as much as we want. So you can actually see our product being used in the in the basement of the White House, which kind of... Yeah, it's it's hard to explain really.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the um for those of you keeping track at home, so not only has Matt bootstrapped a uh, company with the rest of his team, which you know, protects people's lives and property using a SAS application, but they bootstrapped it to the point where rather than going to like the you know uh NOAA, the national uh oceanic aeronautics administration and getting data directly from them, uh the the folks at the White House prefer to consume that and make, you know, consequential decisions affecting millions of Americans directly through Storm um, <laughs> and I feel like I'm doing a sales pitch. And if I wasn't totally convinced that Storm Pulse was going to take over the world, uh, when I first met Matt and was talking for the last couple of years, I kind of heard the White House story. Didn't the White House eventually send you a feature request? Uh,
1: well, what they did was they just really had a question about, um, oh, that's right, I... I I did see them come into our database uh, as as uh, what was it? Um, NSC, you know somebody's name at NSC.eop.gov, which went right over my head at first. But then when I was trawling through a record, sure enough, it was. Uh, I, I figured out what those acronyms mean, which was National Security dot Executive Office of the dot Gov. So uh, <laughs> then I believed it. <laughs>
0: yeah. So um, let's see. So there's a uh, again trying to feed you the story. The one I heard from you is that there's a particular user of the StormVolce application. Oh, that yeah. <laughs> has a lot of oh remember, yes, yes, and yes. I didn't really like remembering one more, so there was a future request. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's, that's, the context that's... For that request.
1: Yeah, so uh, I did actually get a call back or exchange some emails and got another phone call with them, and uh, sure enough, um, I heard that they wanted to make sure that this this new release, we, we just upped the price and, and explained that basically we had a new business edition, which we did. Um, and so they're going to pay us more that year. And they just wanted to know as part of that, could they make sure that it did not automatically sign the user out? Um, so when the person <laughs> uses it and they close it or whatever happens, they just want that cookie to persist uh, indefinitely. And I said, well, good news is our application already works that way because we have a lot of people in enterprises that don't want to remember all these passwords and it's up to them to sign out. And he said, "Well, that's good because uh, you know, if if the guy goes to use it and it signs him out, you know, and he has to remember a password, that would not be good." And so I dug into this about you know the guy, and and I learned that it's outside a conference room at the White House. And so I said, "Well, I'm imagining there's quite a lot of conference rooms," and he said, "No, this is the only conference room that he uses." Um, there's a kiosk. Uh-huh. There's a kiosk outside, and uh, Storm Pulse is one of the three or four short, quick. Uh, link applications on that, and they just want to make sure that it's always signed in for uh, for Mr. Sir. So,
0: <laughs> yeah. So uh, you heard it here first, guys. Um, this is question with a capital T, even if you don't have two hundred million free users, <laughs> which we might talk about later. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so man, um, every time I tell this StormPulse story to people, I kind of lead with that anecdote. Uh, and I've been called a liar tonight by a few people until <laughs> Silicon Valley. so There <laughs> you go. Yep. Um anyway. So let's see. And it, it's in addition to various uh in the United States government and uh, uh folks all over a bunch of industries like really care about, you know, stuff not uh being in their base, like not their dudes. Uh, you know, the storm pulse is like the application right now that you're selling you know with that uh points uh, direct to individual companies that can use it and you're doing pretty- pretty well on that since last year right like um we'll talk a little later in the call about maybe the difference between uh freemium and the uh pricing model but yeah up until last year or so you had a a freemium model, where the vast majority of people paid you, and then you were trying to sell it to businesses, yep. and you switched completely to the business model, and that's been working out for you.
1: Yeah, we uh, we we put up uh, a paywall very quickly uh, last April, um, quickly because it was two guys and uh, things were things were under crunch. So we put up this paywall, not knowing what would happen, um, and we had about six and a half million unique visitors in 2011. Um, and out of those six and a half million, we had uh, almost a thousand customers sign up so um, you know six and a half million freebies uh, was was nice and all but but the having a customer base um, is even more exciting i 'll say um, certainly a different mm-hmm. phase i mean there 's lots of stories that come from the free and there 's actually lots of benefits in terms of distribution so i i won 't say that it doesn 't have its benefits, but there does come a time where you should make money um, and that 's right. the phase we 're in now so it 's yeah it 's definitely Turned a good corner. Uh, you might even say pivoted, and uh, yeah, here we are now in this uh, paid-only model. So we have a free trial, but the freemium product uh, has been ex- uh, has been retired.
0: Right, and because this is, you know, this is um, largely targeted at large businesses, government organizations that. Um, again, you know, lives and property are on the line, so this isn't exactly like a project management application that you sign up with your credit card and pay twenty bucks and for. So your price points start in like the high hundreds of dollars of year region, and then they go up drastically from there for the enterprise stuff, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, so our, our 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 single seat price this year is uh, seven hundred fifty bucks for the year, which um, for one user, which is kind of like a mid grade Salesforce subscription. If you wanted to do it monthly, although we bill annually, um, which is good for mm-hmm. cash flow. And uh, yeah, our pricing goes, you know, all the way up into the five figures depending on how many seats you want to get. Um, and now we're starting to think and talk about enterprise, which is you know even bigger than that. So that's our kind of our whole yeah. breadth.
0: So um so can give us a little moment from that's where stone Plus is obviously um I'm I keep wanting to claim credit for for something involved in this, so I will claim credit on the prognostication that I knew you guys were going to take over the world a few years ago, <laughs> but apparently the rest of the world did not, and sucked in them uh, especially. <laughs> yeah, sorry, maybe that's a little <laughs> negative. but um, let's talk about angel investing, and I guess this is a time to uh, put a disclaimer. Um, I would not have identified myself as an angel investor prior to us talking about it a little, and then <laughs> you eventually let me put money in the company. Um, thanks. Uh, but you had been bootstrapping this for quite a while now and had a few years ago. And I think largely because uh, you were out of the valley, that did not exactly go over as wonderfully as you would expect given the clear, strong nature of Stormpool. Um right. Now, many of the folks who are listening on the call aren't quite as up on angel investing as the two of us are. So why don't we talk a little about what it is why you would want to take it for your business, what your experience was trying to raise it out to the valley, and what your experience is now of the uh, often, you know, medical attraction that you have, and like how the mechanics work. Sure. sound good? Yeah, sounds great. So, um, basically, angel investing is typically uh, people investing on an individual basis, largely um, wealthier individuals, uh, called accredited investors usually, who are independently wealthy, uh, often in the tech industry as a result of running their own tech businesses who uh, give money um, uh, in return for equity in uh, growth-oriented businesses with the expectation that that business is eventually going to exit uh, either by selling to a larger enterprise or by IPOing on stock market. And they hope that they'll be coming back uh, when that happens. Um, So this is more of the work program would describe as a startup where you're aiming for growth and going to get very big rather than aiming for a uh, consistent returns over like, consistently like compounded returns over long-term and returning dividends. Um, so we talked kind of extensively over the last couple of years prior to you making the decision to seek angel funding over like what it would do for you personally and what it would do for the business. But from your point of view, uh, why did you think taking
1: angel investing was the great choice for Stormpulse? Yeah, um, yeah, and what, so you, just to clarify, make sure I understood the the in there. Why do I think it was or wasn't was not originally or?
0: Uh, well, both of those, I guess. Um, <laughs> sure. Why did you bootstrap when you started it, and sure. uh, what changed? Yeah, exactly?
1: yeah. So we did bootstrap initially, um, and I guess it wasn't for total lack of trying to raise some money. We went to friends and family first, um, and we actually uh, raised about $100,000 from friends and family, um, who you could also call accredited. Um, but those, those friends and family supported us in the early years of bootstrapping, where we had no business model whatsoever. We were just two guys with the product and no distribution. Um, then we ended up getting the distribution. Uh, like I said, we had the 6.5 million visitors. And we started seeking our first round of uh, real angel funding. And, you know, I know that there's a lot of people who, you know, are bootstrap only and bootstrap forever. Um, And I think it's, that's fine. I think it can become this religious war over, you know, who's right, which way is the right path. Um, I do think there is a time when you sit there and you look at a business and you say, you know, this, there's, there's no reason this couldn't grow faster other than I need capital up front to fund faster growth. And in that case, you know, raising money makes a lot of sense. Um, rather than looking for that kind of linear growth to come through charging, you know, more customers, more money and, you know, watching it grow, it just grows more slowly that way. Of course, obviously raising money though, at the same time, um, implies that you are going to grow fast. So if that's not for you, if you don't like the thought of growing 50 plus percent, you know, uh, year over year by growing, I mean, you know, so you take last year and you double it or so, um, then it's not really for you. Uh, but if you have a huge market mm-hmm. and a product people love, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I always believe that Storm Pulse ha- uh, certainly had a big market. It um, took me a while to figure out exactly what corners of the, you know, massive world's uh, uh, enterprises I wanted to go after. Uh, but once we figured that out, started figuring that out, you know, then it made sense for us to go and try to raise some money. So um, we, had, we, we did a couple rounds of, uh, of seeking. Um, first one didn't work out uh, too well, but the second one did. Um, and there are different reasons for that, which we could get into, but um, I'll pause there, and you, you can ask the next question if you want.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I'll give you some of my thoughts on the bootstrapping thing, because obviously um, most of the folks uh, listening to the podcast know this, but I've bootstrapped all my businesses for the last, uh, I it's seven or eight years now. Wow, since 2006, uh, I feel old. But um, I perpetually like to have my in the water of the funded startup world. Uh, which ninety nine point nine five percent is the fault of happy news. Uh, just if you spend all of your time talking to people who talk about it a lot, it will eventually pull you in. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and, you know, uh, I love bootstrapping. It's kind of where my heart is. I, I always think that in the future, it's you know possible that I continue bootstrapping forever, and possibly and possible that I can uh, eventually choose to take funding for either. A point, or a reminder, or one of my other perhaps future businesses. So uh, we'll see where the road takes me. But again, you know, I think it's a uh, it's a decision both based on where your business is, where you want it to go, and what your personal goals are. Um, in particular, there's a lot of one of the reasons that I've never taken it, despite fairly really compelling offers, to, is that um, there's a lot of freedom associated with bootstrapping and that you. Um, and your roadmap for the business, both in terms of like the technical roadmap, the product, the road, road, marketing roadmap. And um, there is, like, obviously you have to satisfy your customers, and if you have employees, you have to satisfy your employees, but uh, there aren't other major stakeholders that you really have to keep happy. Whereas with, you know, after you have uh, any sort of external money involved, um, uh, folks can theoretically call you up and say, Hey, what has my money been doing lately? kind of uh, sure. uh, pushing you towards uh, options that you might not have uh, otherwise gone for. Not that I would, you know, pull that in the middle and say, Matt, where's my money at? But, uh, <laughs> yep. Yeah. One of the nice by the way, um, this is just generic advice for people getting investment. Um, try to get money from people who understand the business you are in. Uh, <laughs> not always an option for friends and family, but uh, if you were going to, you know, take money for investing in a tech business for, from angels, um, like all dollars are not created equal, it's probably better to get money from somebody who was in tech themselves, so they understand it, and uh, to the extent possible, from somebody who brings like knowledge to the table uh, about your market or your industry or particular uh, topics of interest for you. Yeah. Like, you know, um, if somebody had made their millions and, I don't know, Facebook games or whatever, they might not be the ideal investor for Star Pulse, um, simply because they don't really have all that much to tell you about the distribution story for getting into more places like the White House Situation Room, uh, which scratch my head a little bit. I wonder how much I had to uh, add to that equation, but I do understand, like, <laughs> you know, for on the internet a little bit, so hopefully I give good advice once in a while. Yeah,
1: yeah. no, I think I think you're absolutely right. You know, and one thing about investing, um, that people who haven't, uh, well, I say fundraising because really we're on this side of the table, um, that people might not have thought about before if this is their first time around, is, you know, there's, there's genuine value add, um, And there's a fellow by the name of Patrick uh, Vlaskovits who wrote a great post on this about what is real value add. You can find him on Twitter at PV. But uh, value add can actually be genuine, helpful advice or insight or, you know, rolling up the sleeves kind of help. Um, Or there is a value add, which is the total absence of any involvement, which um, you can actually call it, I mean, derogatory, you know, the derogatory way of saying it is uh, dumb money, but really uh, that that kind of means that that's money that gets involved that tries to meddle and mess things up mm-hmm. um, It's really kind of laissez faire you know money, which can be, also be very valuable if you just need money and a bank isn't the answer and you're just looking to fund something um, if the person's just willing to you know, make an investment and not make a lot of demands or get involved, um, which is to say pretty much be silent. Um, if that's their if that's the way they like to invest and, and manage things, um, that can also be really good for the entrepreneur. So I would say you really want to be on either side of the spectrum. Either somebody who's genuinely helpful, uh, or somebody who just completely stays out of the way. The the worst thing is obviously people who think they're adding value but really aren't. Um then they're just wasting your time and theirs and adding stress and uh none of those are going to help you.
0: So um I guess so we talked from your perspective as the entrepreneur of what you wanted to do with uh, getting angel investing, but just to uh, blab by myself from my perspective as an angel investor, what I get out of this relationship. Um, primarily for me, it's an opportunity to make a lot of money because I have a fairly really happy software business and that's the, uh, uh, the, way the numbers would work out is that my software business is going to deliver returns from any investing I do. But um uh, like, I really believe in the vision of StormPulse. Again, you know, I've lived in Japan my entire adult life. There has to be better technological approaches to, um, like, severe weather risk management. And also, um, you know, we've been, like, corresponding for the last three years. And when I heard you were uh, um, raising an angel round, I wanted to do anything possible to accelerate the success of the business. And uh, I thought in, you know, my little sometimes accurate, sometimes perhaps not so much estimation, that the most credible statement I could make to Silicon Valley investors that I was trying to introduce you to was, uh, by the way, guys, my money is already in this, you know, mm. it's, uh, that's yep. my endorsement. You can do it, too. Um, yep. Would you mind saying, like, publicly, the one I introduced you to? Uh,
1: yeah. Or, no, or no, that's, you to? that's completely yeah. fine. Yeah, so, that's a good story. Yeah,
0: so, um, I'm personally involved in 500 Startups, which is a, uh, a well-regarded... They um, used to call themselves super deals. I think they're like a mini VC fund these days, but uh, it's a fund in Silicon Valley uh, run by Dave McClure, Paul Sing, and a an increased group of other partners who I might not have had the chance to meet them all, and, um, uh, and Christine, uh, last name I'm blanking on right now, yadda-yadda. Anyhow, they're a good deal. Uh, pulsing knew me over the internet So uh, it would be at least How many people I could, I could say Oh yeah, I'm internet buddies with him these days um, Far too much time in the news, what can I say <laughs> uh, So we had swapped Some thoughts about uh, Selling software, which is something he used to do And something I do on a fairly regular basis uh, To um, uh, There to Just say hi one time when I was in the valley like, For whatever reason, I think probably like a Twitter conference or something and uh, he asked if I wanted to be a mentor at 500 Startups, which it's all about being a consultant without the, um, uh, without the, you know, complication of actually taking money for anything. You just talk to people that, uh, they are invested in or incubating and, uh, give them advice. And that sounded like a pretty fun thing for me because, you know, giving a text area, I'm physically incapable of not typing it. And, you know, talking is just like <laughs> a text area with less HTML involved. And, um, so one of the nice things about uh, having like social connections like that is that when um, Silicon Valley, Valley is, a place I have a complicated relationship because there's wonderful things about it and not so wonderful things about it. One which straddles the line of those two is that it's a very relationship-oriented place. Like um, it's very difficult to raise money in Silicon Valley if you don't know anybody. Um, on the other end of the ledger is if you happen to know lots of people, then you can raise money in Silicon Valley, perhaps independent of the quality of the thing you were raising money for. Um, so the nice part is that since I have like a social in with um, with modern startups or with other folks in the Valley, I can do one of the Valley's little social rituals, which is called an introduction. Which is basically, you person X should know the third person Y. I vouch for why, ergo, like, rub off some of your trust for me onto them, um, which is pretty much the only way to get uh, uh, investment from most VC funds and the angel investors because otherwise they have, you know, 5,000 people coming out of the woodwork talking about their new Facebook for dogs. Um, so I introduced uh, I introduced Matt to 500 startups and told him, in very strong terms, would come over to the office and cases in if they did not invest in you. Um, and obviously you had the, the numbers and story to support it. Um, and so they did, which often...
1: Awesome. Yeah, and I um, think, I think it's, it's worth highlighting just how important that introduction is um, or is to their whole mechanics of 500 Startups. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. Dave, Dave McClure said, you know, if you can't get an intro to us, um, you're not really trying hard enough to paraphrase. So, you know, in other words, it, it shouldn't be that hard. It's kind of a it's kind of a test of, you know, the entrepreneur of whether or not you can make these kinds of connections. And at, mm-hmm. at first, I think, you know, especially if you've never raised money before and you're totally outside of the Silicon Valley world. And I, I don't live there, so I can't speak from direct exposure experience. But um, it can definitely oh. feel obviously insulated and you know nepotistic and all these there's all these pejoratives for it. Obviously, um, at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, with all of the quantity of people with ideas uh, and napkins, um, you know, okay. social proof in the in the oldest. I mean, in in that sense, is goes back. You know, obviously, a long, long time in terms of trust and referrals. So, um, so, so I was just going to say, what Five Hundred Startups is doing, by and large, is scaling social proof um, behind the scenes and actually quantifying it and using it in investment decisions. I would say. Um, much more quantitatively even than, say, a traditional VC uh, or angel. So, you know, getting a hat tip from someone like uh, Patio here um, is a really big deal. Getting other ones from other people, you know, having that social network work for you as an entrepreneur is probably the best way to get their attention. So, um, yes, I'm greatly indebted to you, Patrick, for that introduction. I appreciate it. And Paul Singh ended up being the partner I spoke to. And just to give you... You know, the dramatic ending to that story, um, obviously, he really liked our numbers. He thought we were, in one sense, undervalued, if you will, for the amount of traction that we had, um, uh, similar to you. Um, and so, Storm Pulse <laughs> <laughs> so has been a very, um, the reaction has been very polarized. Maybe polarized isn't the right word, because I don't get anybody who's just strongly negative, but it's either, mm-hmm. you know, no no reaction whatsoever, kind of a, just a dead stare, all, or... Um, somebody's just like foaming at the mouth, excited um, and so if you sure. can take that as a compliment, um, <laughs> you know you and the other twelve or thirteen angel investors in the last round um, were obviously on that side. Uh, some of them took a little bit more cajoling, convincing you know proof, uh, but they were just all really excited about the business and it, it it's it's just I find it really interesting because uh, what it tells me is that you know when you combine that element of social proof or trust. And you combine great traction, um, it just goes a really long way to making it a a decision where the where the investor does not feel like they're taking a huge risk, right? So, from the entrepreneur standpoint, you think, well, I want to get investors because I want to have some risk takers on my side, <laughs> and then you talk to them, and the first thing you realize. Uh, Well, hopefully it's not the first thing it is. Hopefully you listen to this podcast and you realize it. But um, they don't really want to take risks, if at all possible, right? That's not why why they're investing is to take risks. Um, They are engaging in the world's riskiest form of investment so that they can make, you know, some of the world's best returns. But taking Mm -hmm. risks is not what they're all about, right? So your job as an entrepreneur is to remove every possible risk from the equation before you ever present it to them. Um, and obviously getting referrals and, you know, thumbs up from people that they already, uh, have credibility in their network and then having great traction. I think those are the most important, but, um, I I honestly believe that once you do those, you know, you're still kind of at, um, you you still may find yourself kind of in a lurch. And so I, I think for us, say in 2012, before we put up the paywall, um, or I was actually that was 2011 before we put up the paywall. We talked to you know VCs and it was just really hard to get them to that yes. So they're always looking for ways mm-hmm. to say no, <laughs> um, no, right. no is the default. Uh, it has to be, and so to get a yes, you have to get those referrals, and so we get introductions. But our tra- our traction, because we weren't charging money of everybody, um, left something mm-hmm. to be desired, and because of that, I don't think we were able to transition into the realm of yes. Um, and I think the realm of yes is kind of that stage where the person is allows themselves to get excited about the business to the point that they, I might even say, uh, overlook some of the flaws of the startup because they just believe so much in what they see, in the positive trends they see. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all this just to say, it's, it's obviously a very nuanced thing. And for the entrepreneur who's going through it, I can totally identify with just how difficult and frustrating it can be um, because in order to raise our, let's see... Uh, just over half a million dollars in uh, convertible debt, I think I ended up speaking to almost eighty people um, and out of those eighty, I'd say the out of the first fifty forty nines were no forty nine were no um, and there was maybe one yes i think and then out of the out of the other you know thirty, we got a increasing frequency of yeses, and towards the end it was all yeses so uh, for the entrepreneur, that can be an incredibly emotionally trying experience. And so part of what I offer, and if anybody wants to reach out to me after this podcast, is uh, <laughs> I, I, I would love to help anyone kind of, uh, however I can, navigate that a little bit because it is very emotional. And I think the key is, the key insight I had was, how do you get the investor as well to the point where they are emotionally excited about your business? And mm-hmm. that is the point at which they go, that's where they fall in love with the girl, so to speak. And they say, mm-hmm. yes, she doesn't know how to cook. And uh, yes, um, she also, you know, has a really annoying way that she laughs, but I don't care because I love her because of this, 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 and this. And until you get to that point, what you'll find is all the investors want to do is point out your flaws um, and say, mm-hmm. well, that's not, that's why I'm not investing. And I think that's a little bit of a red herring because, I think that if an entrepreneur can get investors to the point that they are genuinely excited about your business, I think that actually atones for a multitude of uh, problems because no startup is perfect, right? It's
0: almost like selling a product, right? In that, you know, if you totally nail the, uh, the emotional connection of the user to your product, um, it doesn't have a cheap UI or that the pricing is not the cheapest in the market or whatnot, will be details to the customer. Exactly. Um, so there's just so many interesting things that we just brought up there. Um, why don't we start with uh, this you know, commentary on the Valley, and the Valley's a little peculiarities by two people who are very outside of the Valley. Like <laughs> you said, it's a pretty insular place. Um, where are you currently like, physically located right now when you're doing this call? Yeah. Austin, uh,
1: Texas, right? I, I am in my office in Austin, Texas, yes.
0: So Matt's yeah. so, coming in from Austin. I'm just in right now, which is not you know, nice big city in Japan, which is not the usual small town in Japan when <laughs> I'm so clearly it's possible to like make connections to the valley without physically being in the valley. Um, intent, hint, by the way, there are people on the Twitters who don't dislike talking to small entrepreneurs. And hint, hint. Anyhow, um, so the yeah, um i saying, so I could go back and forth on how much I uh, how much of a barrier I think, you know, that necessity for creating a connection in the Valley is to a determined entrepreneur. Um, my personal experience having done, you know, sales to enterprises and having made a bit of a name for myself over the years in the Valley is uh, that, man, sales to enterprises is so much harder than than getting somebody to take a coffee date with you. That's, you know, if you think you're going to be successful in business... Um, Getting on the radar of people in Silicon Valley, not quite as hard as you would think. Um, honestly, if you, you know, three blog post about a particular topic of interest to, say, startups and money is enough to get you on the right people's radar screens, uh, assuming you get some sort of distribution to those blog posts, which could be an entire podcast by itself. Yeah. Um, let's see. So I mentioned a magic Silicon Valley word that no one ever defines. So I want to dig into it a little bit. Traction. You have yeah. traction. We can't invest in you because you don't have enough traction. Yes. Uh, call us back when you have more traction, or as the most insidious from the VC know, which is um, we would love to see a little more traction before before deciding on uh, uh, looking at the startup again. Um, so let's see. I will link it in the notes. But there's a uh, great talk between uh, Nival and Dave McClure on what passes for traction in the Valley, but just from our kind of biased perspective on the matter. Um, I think folks might hear that, like, 6.5 million visitors a year for, you know, Storm Ball's prior to putting it to the wall and thinks that's a totally achievable number. Um, Bingo Card Creator, like, creators the approach to that. But Bingo Card Creator doesn't have traction because it's not growing very fast and, uh, the, like, the market is not good, ginormous. And because, um, unfortunately, Bingo Card Creator has revenue, and after you have revenue, the... <laughs> the saliency of, like, large business numbers drops a little bit, and then people will, like, look at the revenue. Yep. For yep. revenue-based traction, for, like, recurring SaaS model businesses, um, like, you know, if you're put a business and you get up to 8 a month, you are in a wonderful place to be in life. 8 uh, a month, like, is the approach to where you start getting, you know, angel investment as long as it's growing, um, after you start to get into the, like, five figures a month of recurring revenue, like, you will start to get on progressively larger angel-slash-PC um, firms' radar screens. So just if you, you know, if you need a number to shoot at, that's your number, like, low five figures, and then that will quickly get you into the right place. Um, it can even be lower than that if it's growing very fast or you have a particularly good story about the market, like... You know, everybody will be using this technology in the last five years. Uh, we grew revenues from two thousand dollars to three thousand dollars in the last month. Uh, you know, we don't see it slowing down. Yeah, That's, like important. Your understanding of it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I I agree with that, and yet obviously I would add to it. Um, my thought would be, you know, first of all, probably in the world you're looking at, you have more experience in the month-to-month revenue business than I do. So we charge yearly, um, and our business mm-hmm. is very yearly just because we're, we're B2B. So, um, you know, I tend to think in more yearly numbers than, than monthly numbers, but I think you're probably right on the, on the quantities. But my definition of traction, if I can throw it out there, um, is, is evidence that you can capture value at a, at a rate that moves the business forward. So, you know, and then obviously, the next, the, next, the next question is moving forward into what, right? Are you about to max out at $100,000 a year or is this a $10 million a year business? And that, that is also kind of then proving this feedback loop where the more traction you get, the more evidence you have that the market may be bigger than you originally thought. So it's a virtuous cycle or spiral if it's working out. If it's not working out or if it's flat, um, you may say, well, we have six and a half million users. Yeah, but they're all free. You know, you don't have evidence that that's a business. You have evidence that you have a much smaller version of the Weather Channel, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so for us, traction, oh, was, traction was not until we had strong evidence that we could collect money at a rate um, that let us move the business forward, which meant, you know, pursuing the enterprise, hiring more people, growing a business that was, you know, on course to do, you know, uh, in the millions of revenue rather than in the hundreds of thousands, you know, forever and ever. Um, and, and, so I I say capture value because, uh, really what you're also doing is if you had enough free traffic, then you can make the, you know, ye old advertising argument, which is, you know, we are going to place a tax on the, on the attention that we're capturing. Um, so your value you're capturing Mm -hmm. there is people's attention and we're going to tax it with, you know, these advertisements, or we're not going to tax it very much with these AdWords and make a ton of money. Um, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's, all, because it keeps—it's shifting. Sometimes it's eyeballs, sometimes it's dollars. But like you said, sometimes eyeballs are better than dollars. Because when we were a hundred and ninety-five thousand dollar per year business, people gave us the blank stare. You know, <laughs> um, when right. we, when we decided to uh pour six and a half million. And the
0: people, reason, by the way, for that um for for folks playing long at um, home is like for an individual person, hundred ninety-five thousand dollars is a wonderful, wonderful outcome. But if you're invested in Silicon Valley, you know that $195,000 does not even cover a single engineer. So <laughs> if you do not see that growing explosively, um, then it's just not. Um, it doesn't have any potential in terms of like value towards an exit, which again is what people are aiming for at the end of the day.
1: Exactly. Um, so, so, so in our case, tra- in our case, traction with a capital T you know, was partly, you know, in retrospect now, we can, in hindsight, we can apply the narrative and say, look, the president was using it. Isn't that awesome? Um, VCs, believe it (laughs) or not, not so excited about the president using it as much as, well, how much did he pay you? Because now you're in the post-revenue zone. Um, So if you're going to do it on eyeballs, then I suggest you stay in the pre-revenue zone um, or be prepared to quickly accelerate the revenue aspect. So, you know, we we basically uh, poured six and a half million people through a very large funnel. Um, and a 1,000 mm-hmm. customers came out the other end. And then when you have a conversation with somebody and you say, yes, we have 195 customers, or you say we have close to a 1,000 customers, totally different order of magnitude. And speaking of which, Gabriel, Gabriel Weinberg uh, wrote a recent blog post on orders of magnitude. And I think that's really, in many ways, what getting VCs excited is about, is proving that you hit that next order of magnitude, and the next order of magnitude is just around the corner. So this 195,000 is about to become 1.95 million. And soon after that, You know, in two years, we can see it being $19.5 million. Um, If you can keep moving the decimal point uh, on any metric, Mm -hmm. then you're probably in good shape.
0: (laughs) Right. Um, We should talk a little bit about uh, the difference between angels and VCs. So angels are typically uh, people who are investing their own personal money. Um, VCs, venture capitalists, have what's called limited partners in the venture capital fund, which are typically extraordinarily wealthy families like, you know, Bill Gates Wealthy or uh, institutional investors like uh, pension funds or you know the Harvard Endowment, which has billions and billions of dollars of assets. They take a small portion of those assets, like the majority are in more traditional investments like stocks and bonds that you and I could buy. But a small portion of that is their risk capital that they allocate to quickly growing businesses. But because you know the Harvard Endowment does not want to be dealing with entrepreneurs themselves, they uh, check for... $10 million or $20 million to a venture capital fund, that venture capital fund gets four of those checks put together, you know, uh, collects $50 million and then attempts to dribble that down to businesses. Um, so kind of the incentives on the structure of angels are angels and VCs that are different, particularly with regards to scale. Uh, and Paul Graham has a great essay or two that I'll teach you the basics of this, but uh, most relevantly for the people listening to this conversation, um, they're like the scale of exit that could be a win for an angel is orders of magnitude lower than the scale of exit that could be a win for a BC. So, for example, well, um, like not talking about storm pulse here, but hypothetically, I had another angel and I don't, and um, I invested at a hypothetical valuation of a million dollars and it sold for 10 million dollars. You know, plus or minus some rounding or due to dilution, yada yada. Like ten x is my money, and that makes me happy. But um, a VC, like if an exit, uh, if a company exits for ten million dollars, that goes into their books as a loss because they did not hit the um, multiple hundred millions of exit that they need to make the numbers and their business model work out. And um, if they collect a lot of losses like that, they will not be able to close their next fund. So um, it would be it would suck to be mm-hmm. them. So, um, to, like, look, like angels can be pretty happy with exits in, like, billions of dollars to tens million of millions of dollars range. Um, the super angels, which are the angels investing other people's money, like, I think, 500 startups would self-identify them, um, can be pretty happy with exits in, like, you know, 10 million, 30 million, 50 million on up from there. And then uh, once you get into VC land and a series A investment, are you know shooting for in the hundreds of millions of dollars range and after you get serious BC and whatnot in that uh, help you, you better IPO more uh, <laughs> you know just for you um, so you those are like the exit valuations um, the the interplay between like a company's revenue and a company's exit valuation is kind of complicated, depending on who's doing what. The buying, like you know, you could, buy for strategic reasons, a company that doesn't have much revenue, like uh, say YouTube, can pay a very large premium uh, because it's strategic for you if you're say Google and need to control the internet. Um, but uh, just like as a rule, of if you know you are trying to meet the victory condition for your investors of an exit in the mid tens of millions range, you should be thinking of having millions of dollars to the low tens of millions of dollars of revenue uh and then scale up linearly from there. Uh, so all that sounds fairly like fairly on point to you?
1: Yeah, I would say so. Um you know it, it's it's really <laughs> If I were going out and raising money again for the first time, what I wish I had really understood is uh, very much what you just said. And one thing that can help you is if you're looking at a VC firm, you know, not all VC firms are the same in terms of fund size. So how much money right. they got from those LPs can vary anywhere from as tiny as, say, $20 million um, all the way up to, you know, a billion dollars or more, um, and that, that size of their fund is going to greatly influence how much money it takes to as they say in VC and entrepreneur parlance move the needle so the needle okay. the needle on the dashboard of the VC's car does not move um, if they have a 500 million dollar fund and they they got uh, let's see let's say you sold your company for 50 million and they own 33 percent. Um, then they get their six, well, whatever it was. Uh, how many millions of dollars would that be? They get their one third of fifty million, um, and that doesn't really do anything for them whatsoever, like you said. Um, so for mm-hmm. that, for that five hundred million dollar fund, you know, they want to own a larger stake in a company that sells for five hundred million plus. Um, and so one thing I've done, which should probably get me uh, maybe mocked or shot by some folks, but for the extremely time constrained entrepreneur. You can almost look at it as if I don't sell for as much as this person's fund, um, I may not be very attractive to them. So if you're approaching a $500 million fund and you're thinking your company is a $50 million exit, you probably are wasting your time unless um, they get so excited they convince you that it could be sold for $500 million instead or there's just something you don't know. But um, So a, a $50 million VC fund, which would be a micro VC, uh, could be extremely excited about that. You know. 40 forty million dollar exit, um, fifty million even better. So, and obviously, you no know, VC is going to turn down more than that. So, um, if Sequoia sells a company for a billion dollars and their fund size is you know one point five billion, um, they're they're pretty happy about that. Obviously, so you know you got to know who you're got to know who you're partnering up with.
0: Yep, um, all true advice. This is a rough rule for people playing along at home. By the way, VC um, funded for about ten years within that 10 years, they want to have exits that approach a particular internal rate of return. Um, it works out to be that, like, as a rule of thumb, they want to triple their money. So if it's a $50 million fund, they have to achieve $150 million of return, which if they mm-hmm. own, you know, 10% of a uh, typical company at exit, uh, they have to sell $1.5 billion worth of companies. So, you know, do the math there. Um, it, uh, it doesn't support many like two million dollar
1: exits, right? Um, anyhow, and w- what, one one so thing to deep. one thing to mention as well, which um, is kind of maybe fundraising two two oh one hundred one instead of one hundred one, uh, but it's important <laughs> when you're talking about angels and VCs is that you know many angels will often get the opportunity to um, exit earlier. So if the if the company you don't you know you don't have to go to IPO for example, and many angels won't. Um, so When the company that, you know, took an angel investment ends up raising money at triple the valuation of that angel round, some of that money that comes in could very well go into the pockets of angels so that that VC can buy them out um, and own their share of the company. So the VC comes in and says, I want to own 40% of this. And on the books, there's 10% equity in angels' pockets. um, Those angels uh, will often be bought out completely and get their 3X and then take it and play with it again. And the VC is now in for the longer haul. Um, and of course, some, some VCs that get in very early and companies that end up going huge uh, can also do that if you end up raising a Series B or C or D. So, um, yeah, there's there's multiple ways for folks to make money. Angels are generally not in it for the IPO. Um, and I think that's where 500 startups is really interesting, right? Because they'll put in a very small angel-sized check. Um, they'll wait for the they'll wait for the cream to rise. They'll invest again in those companies that are winning. Um, and they will right. they will hold on for a long time. Um, and yeah, I, I, obviously it's just it's a great hybrid model, I think. Um, part of the reason I'm excited to have them involved. So
0: Right. Um, I really like software startups as well and they're um, both Lifey and them are doing excellent things to uh, inject a bit more rationality and efficiency into the V C market. So, you know, I don't think capitalist VA for efficiency. so some folks listening along to this might Think wow, this is wonderful! I want to be an angel investor, so I want to disabuse you from that notion right now. <laughs> because for the vast majority of people listening, to this angel investing is not a wonderful idea. Um, first, there's a requirement which might get eased with the crowdfunding stuff coming down the pipe, but uh, at at the moment, um, like you, largely can't invest in companies that, uh, unless you are an accredited investor. And uh, you can look up the requirements for being an accredited investor online, but I think it requires um, $1 million in assets outside of your uh, the value of your primary residence or $250,000 in income for each of the last two years, Um, which people might be wondering, um, wait, if this is true, then Patrick must be an accredited investor. How the heck did, did he get to one of those? And the answer to that is, um, well, that gives you one data point on where what appointment a reminder is doing. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, even for you know people who are clearly in a fairly decent financial position, uh, angel investing is incredibly risky. Most people will be away, totally. And I don't expect anything like down the storm pulse, obviously. But you know, if uh, a meteor struck Dallas and was not predicted by the storm pulse software, I. Um, you know, it would uh, not compromise the ability of my wife and I to lease the rent for anything. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> the of my, yeah, the vast majority of my investment assets are in you know, nice traditional Roth IRA, investing in uh, index funds. Um. Anyhow. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, we were. Let's see. All um, oh. angels, by the way, and this is just a aside. Are doing it for. I'd say primarily non-economic reasons. Again, structurally, you have to be fairly wealthy to invest, in the, uh, invest as an angel investor. The expected returns are terrible. Uh, it takes a lot of time, you know, relative to like an index fund. And uh, the, you know, uh, since you can only safely invest a small portion of your net worth in it, it's not likely to really move the needle on your personal portfolio. So why I do it, uh, is an interesting question. Uh, one of the reasons that there's lots and lots of angels doing it is it's kind of a um, hobby-slash-love-style choice for some people. Um, particularly in Silicon Valley, there's lots of angel investors who might have a bit of money because they were in large companies in the valley uh, that do social networking or search engines at the right time, and so they have a bit of money. And uh, the culture in the valley doesn't really let you, like, you know, blow money on, um, super deluxe sports cars or anything. But, um, blowing money on angel investments is considered, you know, a wonderful thing to talk about with your friends. So that's one reason why people might do it. Um, again, you know, for me, it's partly wanting to support Storm I I wanted to win, like most companies, you know. Companies live, companies die, and die a, as a capitalist. That happens, but um, I kind of like your guys' vision for the future and support is it kind of, like, the main objective. Yeah. Um, but obviously I'm not saying the same about, like, this going like ooh. Yeah. The I vision for the future is human's slave to dopamine treadmills.
1: <laughs> yes, scary. Um, I, I was going to add my... My one cent on that would be: you're absolutely right. You know, angel investing. Uh, I'm not <laughs> nowhere near being an angel investor. And but I, I, even though I'm an entrepreneur and I love the risk taking parts, I don't know that I would ever be interested in angel investing. Um, simply because, in order for it to work economically, you'd have to do it at such a scale. So I, I guess maybe rephrase that. I don't. I don't think I'd ever be interested for economic reasons either. Um, even just looking forward, because in order for the economics to work you'd have to invest in so many companies that uh, you'd have to take a, 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 not spray and pray because that's a negative way to look at it, but a making a lot of bets um, method. Uh, I think, yeah, the angel investing that seems to work emotionally, even though not economically, would be the, I'm investing in these guys because I love what they're doing and I think I can help them. Um, Mm -hmm. That is, uh, that actually seems, um, that's probably the... That's the more popular choice, like you said. Uh, the the no man's land in between is the oh great I can invest twenty thousand dollars and you hand it to three people or one person and there went twenty thousand dollars. So um, that that hopefully it's not that. Um, and yeah, we'll see how that whole piece works out on AngelList where people can invest. You know, even if they're not accredited or down to a thousand dollars. I mean, for for that mm-hmm. really to work economically for somebody, they would need to make a lot of one thousand dollar investments. I think. Um, right. Yeah. You would,
0: I think the the um, the model there, and I don't know that crowdfunding is a very wonderful idea, to be honest. But the model is like um, we were talking earlier about you know the money where the angel is totally off, like they don't have any input into the business whatsoever. Um, for it to be attractive to the firm, I think it would have to be like you know 200 people each investing one in dollars with the expectation that they get um, their SLA, service-level agreements, as an angel investor, is uh, you can follow our Twitter feed. (laughs) Um, We will never actually talk to you about this. Right. Um, Just because, you know, it doesn't make sense
1: otherwise. Right. There's a little little bit of a, I don't know, a selection bias that happens, though, or or availability bias, because if you think about it, uh, a lot of the best startups aren't looking for those dollars. I mean, you know, they're not necessarily desperate for another $1,000 investment or looking for that kind of crowdsource thing. So, I don't know. It's <laughs> it's, it's interesting. I mean, only... Right. S- such a t- scare me,
0: too, as a... that um, uh, yeah, you, you called it availability bias. I might call it a... Um, oh, shoot. My English uh, capacity is failing me. Um, Just say it in Japanese. Every selection
1: process
0: <laughs> where... Yeah. Uh, ...the, like the people who have the most compelling businesses can get professional investments by the experts into those most compelling businesses. And people who don't have quite so compelling businesses but might still want to raise some money might go to um, folks who are wealthy but amateurish with respect to their investment decisions. And again, this isn't becoming kind of thing from on because I'm totally an amateur here, but um, other people who might know less about it. You know, yeah. Random software engineer at a company that pays a lot of money, yep. <laughs> and um, the like. If the cream of the crop gets picked by the professional investors, then the and the professional investors don't do really wonderfully um, numerically um, investing. Uh, the median return in VC land is probably negative. So, if, yeah, if uh, professional invest, investors who can convince people to give them twenty million dollar checks a uh, return which is median negative. And amateur investors investing in the non agreement the crop companies are probably not gonna do all that surgically for themselves.
1: Probably not.
0: Um, so again, uh, don't go don't go into investing uh with the money you can't afford to lose. Right. On the, other hand, the one that I'd, um I will say about it in companies other than Trumps is that at least it's better than Bitcoin, but that is a whole other podcast episode. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Um, so let's talk the, like the mechanics of it, because we've been talking about investing in high-level terms. I think a lot of people will understand it as, you know, like me buying stock in your company, but that isn't really what happens, right? Mm, um, no. or It can
1: be. Or... Uh- <laughs> Uh, it, it can be, it really depends on the type of raise, right? So um,
0: right. what would you but hear? Kind of like Go ahead. for angel investing these days for decreasing the paperwork burden and uh, uh, getting away from needing to price around the, uh, I don't know if I would call it a standard, but a very popular option is called a convertible. Um, do you want to explain to the audience what a convertible note is? Yes,
1: yeah, sure. Um Convertible note is it's it's basically a loan um, with a fancy name and some fancy options, which are uh, you know the angel investor or the investor loans the startup money, um, and there is a maturity date on the loan, just like all loans. Uh, but prior to that maturity date, uh, since this investor does not just want to get his money back with a you know per annum uh, interest rate uh, return, um, before that happens, there is what's called a, a trigger event or a fundraise that happens. Um, which triggers the conversion, hence the word convertible, of that money into uh, some stock equivalent. So um, what it basically means is, for example, somebody gives somebody $25,000 uh, on a convertible note basis, that entrepreneur then will see that $25,000 on their books as a liability or a loan until the time that that entrepreneur raises a qualified financing, which you know, could be any amount, let's just say it's you know, $750,000. Um, once he raises that $750,000 from a VC or from more angels, however it works, uh, out for him, then that $25,000 will turn into shares. So now that investor actually has stock uh, in that company. Until then, he really just had a loan against them. Um, And like you said, it it definitely decreases the paperwork. It also has, for the entrepreneur's benefit, um, I mean, that's a benefit. The other one is the fact that you can have what's called a rolling close, So, back in the other world, you had more like closing on a house where this is the date they hand over the keys, everything's done, this is my closing date. Um, In the convertible note world, you can have multiple closing dates. So, you can take money from, if you have a line of 15 angel investors and somebody wants to give you money today, you can take the money from them. If the other people aren't quite ready yet, or if you're still warming up some people, um, you can get them in the door later. So, you know, you might end up spending 30 days or 60 days collecting checks Um, which frees you up from having to have one massive convergence point, which is really hard to do because angels, as opposed to VCs, often have real lives and jobs and their own things to deal with. So it's not their entire job to make sure they have the bank wire all teed up for the exact day that it's supposed to be. So um, a lot of things just come easier when you go with that method, but um, it obviously... It can have its uh, downsides, but I think if you understand it well enough, then the downsides are not shockers. So,
0: Right. And if you want to see this subject in a lot more detail, uh, we'll link it in the notes, but there's a Paul Graham essay called, uh, I think, High Resolution Fundraising, which uh, discusses the uh, benefits in a lot of detail. One of the main benefits is, again, um, investors are kind of herd creatures, and uh, a frequent thing that you got in that day's press rounds was, I'm willing to invest if everybody else is willing to invest. So given that angel rounds typically involves a lot of different people with varying levels of um, enthusiasm and sophistication and ability to access on a basis, um, like you can cause an unpleasant kind of deadlock situation where A is willing to invest if B is willing to invest, and B is willing to invest if C is willing to invest, and C is, to invest, <laughs> C is willing to invest if D is willing to invest. And D is currently on a vacation to Europe, but he's is willing to invest if he is willing to invest. <laughs> and, uh, and then nothing goes forward, and you uh, and the entrepreneur carry your hair out. Um, whereas with invisible note, um, like literally the only thing Matt needed to do to raise money for me was we uh, agreed on an amount. He sent over to the docs, I signed him and then wired money to the um, uh, the Storm Pulse account. Yeah, uh, and. You no, know, no collusion with other investors was necessary. Okay. I don't think I even knew there were like you know, I was sold. Um, so I didn't know any other investors <laughs> were there at the time and wouldn't really have needed that. Yeah. Um, which and obviously after you have money in the bank, you can say, I have money in the bank from people, so if you are working on this, you should move quickly. Yep. Which again, wonderful thing from the uh entrepreneurs perspective. Um see so What's I going to say about that? Um, uh, we've mentioned t- the figure 25000 a few times. Uh, typically, historically, in angel investing, like 25000 is the minimum size of a check that so can get a company interested in you just because of the amount of um, overhead it takes to bring on an additional investor and uh, the amount of overhead that that has going forward. Um, that's kind of like the baseline these days, unless you have something else that can interest a company besides just the dollar value of your investment uh i don't know are you okay with saying a number of what our investment was or yes oh. i'm happy mentioning it but it i do it, it,
1: it was i would say this is under the twenty-five thousand number for precisely that reason because uh i believe you have incredible value add for us um made the introduction and it turns out that uh you know a thing or two about um SEO, SEM and all things internet marketing. So um yes, that's that, yeah, that definitely so one my, of those definitely one yeah, of those cases so my where first, uh, you,
0: yeah. <laughs> my first um uh the uh, when I told Matt that I wanted to invest in him he said uh I want to invest somewhere between five and twenty five thousand dollars with you and I have to talk to my wife some fit and in the process of talking to my wife about it I got the bill for my wedding and it's like, um So, so <laughs> there's a MacBook with my name on it somewhere. <laughs> uh, but you know, again, or yourself is probably bad. Absolutely. So, you know, um, let's see. So we talked about convertible debt. We talked about risk management for angels. Um, one thing I would be my duties as an investor attempting to uh, get as much. Uh, for you guys it's possible if I did not mention you are currently in the process of trying to close another round um, so there's the sales pitch guys uh there is availability those of you who can make use of that information please do. Uh Thanks, Patrick you're also all over the uh uh Angel List, which we could devote an entire podcast to the wonderfuls of uh the wonderfulness of Angel List, but basically it's the emerging standard for people raising um raising really rounds it helps to get there are a lot of like the social pathologies of the valley with needing social proof and whatnot, but you have a wonderfully active profile on an angel list, yep. and uh, people can reach out directly to you if they want to talk about this in more detail, um, assuming they have a checkbook with lots of zeros yep. in it. <laughs> sure. Or know somebody that does.
1: Awesome.
0: Yep. Um, yep. So let's see. Um, so I need a little mini sales pitch. Um Why don't we talk for folks who might or might not be interested in the whole um, funded startup investment game, uh, just in terms of running a business and running a SaaS business at uh, uh, emerging levels of scale, uh, why don't we talk like what we've learned about uh, pricing uh, for businesses and the premium versus premium premium distinction, and maybe some advice on doing high-tech sales and what many folks listening to this are doing, which is currently just, I hope people click over to slash pressing and then put in their, um, details into my credit card sign-up form. Sure. <laughs> so let's see. Um, how did you pick 750 per user per year?
1: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> how about we're, we're, we are growing the price and that is kind of its current height. So it's, a. Uh, Kind of like I have an adolescent son and he's getting taller and taller um, mm-hmm. seven fifty is his current height um we'd be you know I, I think it can go higher from there um, definitely can go higher from there as we get into more additions that just ended up being the price that we are experimenting with currently um, we actually started out with a business that was three dollars and ninety five cents per month um, so so now we are asking for seven hundred forty nine dollars up front um, so yes we we've we've that's a what two hundred and two hundred x price increase more or less um, since we started. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: right. Um, just uh, one takeaway from this podcast for anybody attempting to run a business on three dollars and ninety five cents a month. Don't it doesn't work out. Like it's over. <laughs> like at virtually scale of desired business, it is impossible to make the math work out like that. Um, I won't say impossible. There's people who can do it, but uh, if like, that would be the main ch- challenge for your business. So uh, if you're providing, you know, again, saving people's lives and property kind of value or even any quantifiable amount of value to a business, you can justify it. Um There's a reason people pick the 20 to $30 at the low end, and then it goes up from there in a very dramatic fashion as you create more value.
1: Yeah, I mean... Um, what,
0: what... One thing that I found, and that... Oh, sorry, uh, you go?
1: Yeah, I was going to add one... one... Little psychological touches as soon as you start running your own business, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, is when you get to something and in your business you want it or need it, and it says that it's $100 or $200, I don't think that's ever stopped you in your tracks and made you think, oh, that's too expensive, I don't want that, right? I mean, okay. it, it, so, especially in B2B, in other words, um, B2C obviously your mileage will vary greatly, but in B2B, there aren't many businesses who can't justify a $500 expense on something that they just want, right, or need. Um, and I think it's hard right. for it can be very hard for an entrepreneur who's only been either employed by big co and hasn't had a budget that they can just spend money willy nilly, um, or has run <laughs> their own business to get out of that impoverished mindset of well, gee, with my bootstrap company, I would never spend five hundred dollars on this. It's like yes, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you are not your own customer oh, in this boy. case, I've, right?
0: <laughs> so I have I have every love for bootstrap companies in the world, um, where my heart and soul is business wise, but. Oh boy! Um, when we talk this kind of stuff about hackers, people come out of the woodwork us. "Oh man, you're doing this thing for professional programmers. But it costs as much as twenty dollars a month, or it costs harder. It would pay that." Yada yada yada. And again, if my only business was Bingo Card Creator, Bingo Card Creator, you know, compared to like the the budget presumably available to the White House for protecting against hurricanes, pretty freaking small. The Bingo card creator can drop $150 without me even noticing it. Take that. Like, yep. You know, <laughs> if, if metrics cost 150 a month, it's done. It, if it increases sales by 5% over the year, you know, it pays for itself in perpetuity. Yep. Um, which I think that's what I pay for. That might be what I pay for Kiss and Tricks. I don't even know what <laughs> I pay for. Yep. Um, the reason is, it doesn't matter. Right. And again, <laughs> that's the business that makes like, what? three, four, five thousand a month or so somewhere in there. I mean it you know, at the smallest possible scale of business. Yep. The inputs that people you know, the prices that people want to charge for software don't matter. So don't yep. optimize very aggressively We're, you know, never getting a complaint about pricing. It's not the way forward. Nope. Um so as I said, just the one pricing point, which should probably talk about in more detail at some point, but we might want that conversation to be private. Um anyhow the one of the reasons a lot of companies have multiple pricing points is that it helps uh, segment and capture value from people who are, you know, recognizing that there's a difference in the ability of the new car creator and the White House to afford things. Um, how do you segment the usage of those two organizations such that the White House pays more for the extra of American uh, on the software? That's one of the reasons you see, like, the, you know, the four-column pricing plan on a lot of SaaS, um typically because it uh prints a lot of money as soon as you introduce it. Uh, just and a fly for people. And I talk to staff businesses like it's my job, kinda sort of it is. And um, a lot of folks report that the topmost plan generates an absurd portion of the revenue. Um I'll say for appointment reminder for the the topmost plan which is two hundred dollars a month generates um, of the publicly available plans that generates I wanna say about half of the revenue of the business uh relative to you know the other three plans at 30, 80, oh, wait oh yeah nine thirty eighty a month um don't do a nine dollar plan either it's you know at three ninety five uh if you're selling business. But yeah, um so the top plan where you might think two hundred dollars is pretty rich it is a company. Um do put a two hundred dollar plan up there. It will uh it does wonderful things for you. Sure. Um Two hundred dollars is not really the ceiling for uh, selling the businesses. Um, for selling the businesses, typically the the ceiling for like a month-to-month plan is generally five hundred dollars, but they can put on a credit card without requiring like additional signatures for from management. And then after five hundred dollars, you kind of have to go um, step up your game a little because uh, things will not being so much of a self-service model. Uh, you actually do have to talk to folks. Um, I have a bit of experience with this from that you have much more so there are the like adjustments you have to make when it's no longer here's the website you can sign up for yourself uh and you're actually like, talking to folks how does that process work for you
1: <laughs> yeah uh the process for us kind of started by email um just having a simple email address which hopefully everybody has i getting those initial queries from people who say um you know i want to buy this but i have a few questions first um so answering those emails is obviously a great way if you can scale it up to a point. But then at some point, like you said, there's definitely the right time and place to have an actual phone call, uh, maybe a couple, or maybe a lot of them if it's uh, going to be a large deal. So um, mm-hmm. you know, for me, that really started with uh, putting, you know, sending emails to people and responding with you know, hey, call my cell phone number, kind of thing. Typical you know, self starter entrepreneur kind of method. Um, got a 1-800 number from Grasshopper.com. Not soon after that and end up routing people through the 1-800 number, which then rings whatever phone we want in the business, and talking to people that way. So um, with our business, especially since, <clears throat> you know, um, weather tracking in the abstract is, you know, not very emotional, but when you apply, like you said, the lives and properties to it, people generally want to have a human being on the other line if they're going to spend a lot of money, just to be assured that it's going to do um, what they think it's going to do, or just so that they even understand um, the right way to pay, uh, things of that nature. So, um, we take phone calls. We have a one eight hundred number for our sales line, um, and I love it when people call because it generally means um, that we're going to have an opportunity to make good contact, and you know, um, it increases the likelihood that they'll be retained, and all kinds of good stuff happen when you talk to people on the phone. Um, as long as you can mm-hmm. do it, as long as you can do it profitably. So, yep,
0: right. Um, I and again, this is one of the differences between uh, stuff that you have to do in your. I try and grow the business like that and stuff that you have to do as a bootstrapper. Um, So I live in Japan and so folks calling my cell phone directly or even directly through the 800 number that's on the website would be sort of inconvenient because it would typically land at about 4 a.m. in the morning. (laughs) And while I like doing enterprise sales, I don't love getting woken up at 4 a.m. in the morning. So I drop folks into a, uh, uh, I just drop everybody who calls the sales line straight to voicemail and then attempt to set up a time to call them. Uh, typically at about midnight because I keep engineer hours. So I apologize, to my wife. Say I'm going to get on a call for half an hour, do it, and then go to bed. Yeah. Um, just, just that way. Okay. I do that the way. Um, half of people will hang up immediately when they get to voicemail, and you get no information from them. And uh, I have never closed a sale like that. So yeah. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're in a bull bull horns, uh, don't do it that way. But. If you're a bootstrapper who can control the pace of growth of your business at whatever you want um, it totally does work. It would be like you know both of us come from engineering backgrounds, so this is not exactly in our wheelhouse um like constitutionally or by experience, but um we both kind of learned how to do business and business sales over the years, yeah, and it's amazing people will actually pay money to people that they've only ever met on a phone call yeah and like Lost like lots of money. Yes. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um,
0: so, let's see, what's the what stories can I tell? Um, so, again, you know, in line to a customer, so I always be very upfront with people and say, hey, I'm a one-man operation operating outside of Japan. Uh, I'm a professional at this and our time is pretty good. We have all the problems, like my bus number is one, uh, yada, 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 uh, if they ask about that. Uh, but have, like appointment reminder is currently operating in uh, I I usually say eight of the top ten hospitals in the United States. I'm not sure if that is actually true. Uh, a there's more than eight now, and B I'm not sure if like my definition of the top ten is reasonably rigorous. But suffice it to say, if you name a big brand hospital, appointment reminder might be running it. Uh, Matt again, you know, from his home office, so he could see the big house. Yeah, and I will never get tired of, of telling
1: that story. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know yeah. the craziest part about it, Patrick, is that I didn't do that sale. The, <laughs> I had nothing. <laughs> I had no idea that it even happened, um, and that was true. Of oh, yeah, that's
0: right, they, yeah. they signed up on your website directly. They, they
1: right? just, that was self serve, man. <laughs> <laughs> this oh is, boy! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Life, so. life is wonderful.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. So, uh, uh, just quick piece of advice that. Folks listening at home can steal one of the uh, things that you can do if you're not loving or not at a position where you can jump quick onto a sales call with somebody. Maybe they're not uh, they're not at that point in the relationship. Um, mm-hmm. Use some sort of incentive on your website to capture their email address. For example, you know, if I were Matt, I mean, this is I've given you before, but something to do after you get the other five thousand things off the plate, uh, create like some sort of resource on. You know our white paper about managing severe weather events at your business, maybe specific to a particular industry, and, and you can download this white paper if you give us your email address. And B we're going to get in touch with you every week with stuff you will find interesting. As a you know, risk manager, a risk manager for I don't know a retail business, and then uh, you get in touch with them with stuff they will find interesting, and then eventually after you've established credibility, you attempt to sell them. Uh, that works out very, very well uh, yeah, generating yeah, sales.
1: And you know what, I'll, I'll say this, um, because life is messy and it happens organically whether we like it or not, um, I did, we've done almost everything backwards with Storm Pulse. Um, so these days I think somebody who wants to bootstrap a company... Every bootstrap ever, by the way. <laughs> well, well, somebody who wants to bootstrap a company these days might say, okay, here's what I'm going to do, I'm going to charge from day one, I'm going to build this thing, here's the funnel that we're going to use, here's the flow we're going to use, you know, it's just this machine... Um, we are working on the machine right now, but the machine originally, uh, was just this sort of tipping point in our distribution, um, with Hurricane Ike hitting Houston that took us from 1,000 to 1 million visitors in 45 days. And Mm -hmm. our servers didn't crash. Um, but all of a sudden we were inundated with interest, um, from people that, uh, and we were like the two guys at the hot dog stand that all of a sudden all of Milwaukee wants to come to, um, you know, how do you handle that? And so... You know, I was, we had no, we didn't have the great landing page, and this is stuff I'd like to talk to you about more uh, offline, but, you know, we didn't have the great segmented landing page with the white paper download and the free trial thing set up. It was just people love this product so much that they had to talk to us. They wanted to talk to us and they wanted to buy it, and so they did. Uh And so here I am getting emails from people saying, send me an invoice. And I'm going, I don't even have a template for that. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, and, and you know, and so I was just slammed with a lot of the operational stuff from the get go, um, and there was a fair amount of self service, but definitely people, you know, learning trial by fire, you know, in a lot of ways. And so I'm sitting here looking at in front of me a receipt from, it so happens to be a hospital um, that uses our software. Mm-hmm. That uses our software, um, and you know, I'm looking at an invoice number, and it says three six two one five. And what's great about that, and if this is helpful to anybody or at least an encouragement, you know, that invoice number is a number that we, in the first place, completely made up. I mean, it was like, here's a piece of paper. um, We're going to put some numbers on it. We're going to send it to them. And the first time I got a check from somebody that was a real company, you know, like a Fortune 500 company, and and it was a payment for something, and it referenced an invoice number that I had made up. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. it was kind of like this, you know, this moment of clarity of, okay, I, you know, something came in and something came out, like the system, the plumbing works, you know? Um, but I guess the the encouragement would be, you know, don't freak out when you get these things. Um, in, in a lot of ways, you're always in this, just make it up stage until it works. Um, and then you can refine it and make it look more professional. But I mean, man, I still have copies of the first invoices I sent out and it was like, I don't even know what I was thinking, but you know, I, I, I hate to think what the person that received them was thinking, but it was like the world's least elegant invoice, but it had a number and it had a price and, uh, and it <laughs> had a few other details and that's all it took. So, you know, yeah, B2B is, is yeah. full of wonder. Sure.
0: Yeah. And you know, that's the story that you're going to get up again and again and again, uh, both bootstrapping and, uh, funded. Um, there's a whole lot of making up as you go along, uh, there's, uh, obviously, folks have sold to the Fortune 500 prior to the two of us living. Uh, so a lot of, uh, some of the stuff you kind of take your knocks, to figure out, and some of it you, you know, talk to your mentors slash buddies slash uh, or refine credible and figure out. Like, um, a uh, this is one reason why doing things over like email is helpful because asynchronous. When somebody says, hey, to buy this, we need, you know, proof of insurance from our company, you can mail somebody who's been in business a little while longer and say, um, a hospital has asked me for proof of insurance. What does that mean? Right. Uh, You know, it means a specific thing that you buy a, uh, in my case, like $2,000 worth of insurance that takes a week of your life to get arranged. Uh, and then you can invoice the hospital for the software, which, uh, handily pays for that insurance coverage. Um, (laughs) Yep. you put it mildly. Um, uh, BTW for folks who are not in business. Like, if you're talking about, you know, $500 per month is the kind of upper reaches of, um, uh, of uh, the self serve model over the internet. Um, the price of software is unbounded. I think uh, it probably wouldn't be prudent to mention actual numbers from either of our companies for like the largest contracts, but um, let's say that. Uh, software is sold at low five figures, mid five figures, high five figures, low six figures, mid six figures, high six figure six figures, and up, up, up. Right. Um, it all depends on the value you're offering and uh, you know getting that customer to yes. And astoundingly, like um, one of the reasons that folks don't put prices on the website for you know the enterprise plans is that the only thing you need to do to get. You know, pick a number, $100,000 out of a company, is to convince them that something the you are selling is worth $100,000. And anything, you know, any truthful and ethical thing that you do to get that yes is what you need, you know, you need to get that yes. Yep.
1: And, and what, exactly. And I, I can tell you from some experience now that um, what is helpful is when you're selling B2B, there's obviously the super scalable part enterprise is where you get to the point, I think, I mean, I'm not even in true what you call like the Palantir enterprise or like the massive trilogy enterprise, um, those enterprise, the, the mm-hmm. seven figure deals. But when you're talking about, you know, even high five figures, low six figures, um, you are at that point, you are external to their company, but what you're trying to do is actually navigate their company and their, the way they make a decision about whether or not it's worth a hundred thousand dollars, um, Mm-hmm. And manage—they're going to have their own way of managing that decision making. You are now trying to manage their management of it so that it does not get off course. <laughs> so, in right. some in some sense, you are like the CEO of the of the buying process happening internal to your prospective customer, right?
0: This is probably the most important thing that I've ever learned about doing um, sales at uh, enterprises. Um, basically, you know, if there's an internal person who. Like they want to buy it. There's other people that their management process uh means they have to convince to be able to buy it. You have to empower them, uh some people call them your internal champion. But you have to give everything they need to get those sign offs, which means both A figuring out um, and they might be totally experts about this because they want to use your software. They don't want to, you know, go through the buying process. That's not their their highest ambition in life. But um, we need to figure out what they need to get yes from all the other people. They need a yes from. Figure out who those people are first of all, and then provide them everything they need to get that yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and this is this is the, uh, the the art and science of enterprise sales because it's different on everything. Like, yep. Uh, so, quick story from my first big enterprise deal for appointment reminder. Um, I was so hospital sent out. Uh, 10 requests for proposals to um, 10 people who could theoretically provide, you know, phone calls for their purposes. And um, so we get, and it was for a low budget. So, you know, the larger firms in the industry, like the sales guy got that RFP and was like, oh, beep this, I'm only going to make $100 in commission off of uh, writing this. I'm not actually going to write the detailed response to it. I'm going to just send them a brochure and say, hey, uh, you know, I'll hop on a call if you've got your uh, checkbook out. And um, because I was a little hungrier than those organizations, because I get rather more uh, sales, I get commission out of the sale. Uh, I kind of killed it on that RFP. um, Wrote down, you know, three pages of uh, addressing this in a lot of detail that the typical sales guy wouldn't necessarily know, uh, because you know it's my baby. And uh, then got on for an hour long phone call with this Mm -hmm. hospital and just. We talked about every concern she had, and then after that phone call, I'm taking obsessive notes, and I wrote up those obsessive notes and emailed them to her, and asked if she would please forward that to. um, I had a list of every name that she had, you know, mentioned on the call, so she had, you know, name draft. Oh, uh, you know, we've got Dave and Dr. Larry and whatnot. Could you please forward this to Dave and Dr. Larry as well, just so they they know the stuff we talked about. Um, And so later, when we had a discussion inside the company. between, you know, the safe 800-pound gorilla choice and the little one-man operation operating outside of Japan, uh, A, I was the only guy whose name they knew because, you know, they had emails from me, and I seemed to be a fairly <laughs> trustworthy guy on the subject, and B, because I had spent an hour talking to this uh, nurse and kind of did a decent impression on her, despite not really loving phone calls. Oh, God, they did not love phone calls. Um, but she said, uh <clears throat> a different stakeholder attempted to say, well, you know, nobody ever got fired from choosing IBM or, you know, the analog in our industry. Uh, uh, she said, no, you don't understand. I don't know I don't know that company. I I think they kind of, like, brushed us off. But Epic, this is baby. You take care of your baby. If we ever have a problem with it, we know exactly who we're going to be dealing with, and he'll fix it for us. Like, I trust him. And, awesome. you know, that argument carried the day. Awesome. Uh, and, And that's how you beat out a company that is a thousand times bigger than you, which um, is a story that I'm quite certain has gotten mapped a couple of things uh, along the way. Um, Founders have an incredible advantage on sales, by the way, because you've got like, you've got magical founder advantages. Well, you can announce yourself as the founder or CEO or head of product or where you need to be for the phone call. And people will say, wow, you know, it's it's amazing. You know, We've got a hospital who has a, probably a billion dollars in gross revenue year or you know, some multiple of that. Um, but it can you announce yourself to the hospital as uh, yeah, I'm the founder of the company that you're talking to. And the person at the hospital is like, Wow, I'm the founder of the hospital. So this guy's really doing me a solid by getting out this phone call It's quite the fact you know I'm the founder, sole employee and also guy who's gonna piece out the waste paper every day. Yep. Um, and also like especially for founders who have uh, both the technical and business bent, like you're able to talk about whatever they need to talk about. Like, you know, the sales guy will often say, Well, let me get back get back to you about that question because I need to ask the engineers or even worse, they'll say, Oh yeah, I can totally do that and you know, just be lying and sound like they're lying because they don't have a ring of truth in their voice Whereas if you're a founder you can say, Okay, um, the software doesn't actually do that right now, but it sounds like something that we could get done in about two weeks. How is important? How important is this to you? vis-a-vis your like other priorities, or is there like some other way to meet this need? And when you start talking, you know that level of detail, what people will be like, wow, he knows what he's talking about, unlike mm-hmm. every other sales guy I've been talking to this week. Yeah, I'm not that I hate sales guys. <laughs> um, good sales guys are wonderful, but good sales guys are like good engineers, but they're very rare. Yep.
1: No, absolutely, um, absolutely.
0: Yeah, so I think we're probably like pushing the two-hour mark for <laughs> this uh, conversation. Sure. So we probably want to be wrapping up now. Um, Matt, you uh, have a blog that people can find you at. Uh, what's the URL for that?
1: Yeah, it's my last name, Wensing, W-E-N-S-I-N-G dot tumblr dot com. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Matt Wensing. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, obviously I'm Eleven all over the internet, or at like calzumius.com. dot uh, Storm Pulse is the website storm like the weather phenomenon Pulse like the Pulse of the Nation dot uh, com, and uh, you can take a look at it, um, attempt to invest in it, buy it if you are you know needing to protect the lives and properties of your business. It's good stuff. Um, thanks so much for getting on the, uh, the podcast, Matt. It was an awesome conversation, and I hope the audience learned something from us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot, Patrick.
0: Okay, and thanks very much to all you guys for listening. I know it's been a long night since the last month. Really appreciate your uh, uh, you taking time out of your day with us. Uh, we will see you again next time, hopefully in a shorter time frame than the six months or so it took for you know podcasting before. All right, uh, till next time. Bye bye. Bye, and uh, audio.